The Bible tells us that Jesus will return one day in power and in glory. Until then, how should we wait and live? This sermon is a part of a series on the book of 1 Thessalonians called Living at the End of Time. We hope you enjoy today's message. If a family was moving into town and they were kind of looking for church, they said, what are you looking for in a church? You'd get a lot of different answers. I think from people, there would obviously be an essential commitment to truth, the things that we should be looking for. Other people are looking for a sense of belonging and community. If they've got children and young people, they want a sense of how do they gather in and what have you got for our kids and so on. I think many people today understand that a church has a sense of mission, both locally and globally. So those are the kind of things that are often in people's mind, a kind of checklist about what they're looking for. In this final study this morning in 1 Thessalonians, Paul writes about what he sees in a church at the end of time. And he gives some additional insights into what life in a church should be like for us. As we've seen in other passages, this is, this is not the complete answer by or picture by any sense. We have to add other things to it. But I say to you this morning, these insights are vital for us. And if you have a Bible or your cell phone, whatever you'd read with, um, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, we're going to start from verse 13 through to 22. We'll break it up into some, some chunks as we go. In that last section, if you count them, there are 15 imperatives, 15 commands that Paul gives us, little short bullets, 15 commands. Now, 15 points is too much for a sermon. <laughs> so I've grouped them under some broad general headings to help us kind of hold on to them. Here's what I give you this morning out of this and what I certainly would look for in a church. I would say, first of all, that I want to be in a church that respects its leaders. Scott prayed about that this morning. Hope you heard that. Leadership in any field these days is hard work. We've made almost a national sport out of leadership bashing. In the shelves of my office at home in my study, I have piles, rows of books on leadership. There's probably there more definitions of what leadership is than almost any other topic. And there's a side to leadership which is hardly ever mentioned these days. It's called followership. And it addresses the responsibilities of those who follow. And it seems to me that we don't talk about that, but we should. So here's what Paul says about leaders. Now we ask you, brothers and sisters, to respect, to, to respect those who work hard among you, who are over you in the Lord, and who admonish you. Hold them in the highest regard and love because of their work. Live at peace with each other. The Central Baptist, as many of you know, is a congregationally based church. That means that we prayerfully select men and women to lead us. There's also pastors called to serve the church. And that forms a kind of leadership community. And Paul says, those of us in leadership are over the church, and they're called to what we often call today servant leadership, which is to serve by leading and to lead by serving. They're often called in a church like this, the lay leaders. I got to tell you, I don't really like the word lay in that sense. Because the Greek word laos, laos, 
means all of the people of God. I'm a pastor, but I'm a member of the Laos. Scott's a pastor, but he's a member of the Laos. We're all, you're nodding, aren't you? Yeah, good, good for you. We got it right. We're all the Laos. We're all the people of God. But there's some people that, that don't work here, but they go home after their day's work and after supper's over, they come to the church at the end of their work day and spend more time, hours and hours, in leadership issues. And when Paul says over you, that doesn't mean to boss the church around. It doesn't mean to throw their weight around. First Peter adds some essential attitudes to this picture. He says in 1 Peter chapter 5, be shepherds of God's flock that's under your care, serving as overseers, not because you must, but because you're willing, as God wants you to be, not greedy for money, but eager to serve, not lording over to those entrusted to you. You're not the boss, he says, but being examples to the flock. In other words, it's not about power. Church leadership is not about power. It's about serving the, the church. And I will tell you in my months here, I have great respect for the, the leadership here. Now there's times that leaders have to go eyeball to eyeball with people. Paul says it's to admonish them. The issues they might need to talk about to someone might be theological. They might be moral. They might be relational. And I'll tell you, it is not fun for those on the receiving end or those giving it. It may arouse resentment. We get, we get our backs up. Sometimes we muster support for our position. In a previous church I was in, I was once threatened with a lawsuit over those kinds of issues. Here is the critical test of trust. It is to hold leaders in the highest regard and to support them in their work, especially when we don't agree with them. Very often, those in leadership and pastors will have information about a situation that cannot be shared publicly. That's a place to express trust. And churches like Central are congregationally based. We, we walk a complex, intricate path in the whole area of leadership. For one thing, we tend to bring our thinking and our attitudes about leadership as what happens in the secular or the political world into the church. And we assume it's the same. It is not. We are neither an autocracy nor a democracy. We are to be a community in which Christ, we seek the mind and the rule of Christ. That makes us a Christocracy. And leaders and followers need a whole new way about thinking about this dance. It's a place to find and to exercise together and to walk in the mind of Christ. It means, frankly, that church meetings really should be worship meetings where we seek the mind of Christ and we submit together to his rule. That's what a Christocracy is. So let me encourage you as a starting point to pray for the board the Board of Central, to pray for people in leadership committees, pray for pastors. That's the place to start. And when leaders make decisions that you may not understand, then ask. When you disagree, no gossip, no emails. Talk to them first directly. Ask what you need. And there may be times when you have to let something drop and not push it any further. 
I've been in church ministry and leadership for almost 55 years now. Are leaders infallible? Are they always right? The answer is no. But God has called them to servant leadership. And we need to give them the respect that, that they're due. I would want to look for a church which respects its leaders. Another dimension of life is I want to be in a church where people look out for each other. The next verse says, We urge you, brothers and sisters, warn those who are idle, encourage the timid, help the weak, and then a, a word and a verse that sort of ties all of that together. Be patient with everyone. Warn those who are idle. The Greek word is nothetic. It describes a kind or a style of counseling. In other words, there are times to confront the idle. That may mean morally idle, because we expect believers to live like believers. There may be times when you've got to go and sit down with someone, sit down face to face. Galatians chapter 6 says, if, if someone is caught in a fault, you who are spiritual should restore him gently. That's the word, by the way, for meekness. Encourage the timid. The timid means when someone just loses confidence over an issue. They just don't see how they can move on. You know, you don't admonish people like that because that will crush their spirit. That wipes them out. You got to come alongside them and just encourage them. Bring words of comfort. Restore confidence. Try to build up their courage and help the weak. It's, I think, describing folk who at times just have had the wind knocked out of them. Life has just beaten them up. And we're there to offer help to get them back on their feet again. I think you would sense very quickly it's a disaster, it's a catastrophe if we get these things mixed up. If you encourage the idle, don't do that. Or if you warn the weak, no, get them in the right order. And then a final word that sort of ties all of these things together. It says, be patient with everyone. Um, you may remember over a couple of times I've taught you that there are two different Greek words for patience. The first word is for patience, meaning endurance. And it's always used in the New Testament for patience when we're faced with difficult circumstances. When we just want to quit and pack it in, throw in the towel. And patience says, no, you've got to endure. You've got to push through that. Because these things are often designed to put strength into us. And then there's another word for patience. That's what the word is used, <coughs> excuse me, used here. <laughs> we sometimes talk about needing a short fuse with people. Sometimes we need a long fuse with people. Here the picture is you've got a long fuse. It's the word that actually is used to describe God's patience with us. So for some people, we need this long fuse. We need to slow down and take our time. That's what Paul is saying. And then some final instructions about life together. Paul says, verse 15, make sure nobody pays back wrong for wrong. But always, always try to be kind to each other, to everyone else. The church is simply not a place for retaliation or reprisals. It's a place that, to work at developing, nurturing kindness between each other. So you see, we have to find a, a narrow path. On the one hand, 
there's individualism, a right to privacy. We understand that. But on the other hand, we can interfere and meddle into each other's lives. My sense, again, for many years that most churches who have come across some issue of discipline and try to respond to it have sometimes not done very well. And the results may actually be worse than the initial problem. So what do we do when difficult things come up? Well, I think often we just back off from the tricky, awkward subjects. We hope that either the problem or the people will go away. They'll find another church. No, we got to work harder. There was a Lutheran pastor called Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Some of you may know his name. He was um, in a concentration camp and hanged just a few days before the camp was released. Actually, right now, the pastoral staff is reading one of Bonhoeffer's little books. It's called Life Together. It's a book about community, about living together, some of the issues involved. Here's what Bonhoeffer says. Listen to him carefully. He says, we admonish one another to go the way Christ bids us to go. We warn one, together, no, no, we warn one another against the disobedience that is our common destruction. Then he asks, why should we be afraid of one another, since both of us only have God to fear? The practice of discipline in the congregation begins in the smallest of circles. With defection from God's word and doctrine or life imperils the family fellowship and with it the whole congregation, the word of admonition and rebuke must be ventured. Nothing can be more cruel than the tenderness that consigns another to his sin. And nothing can be more compassionate than the severe rebuke that brings a brother back from the path of sin. Let that sit in the back of your mind. What does that mean for us? Another thing. I want to be in a church. I need to be in a church that helps me each week to, to reconnect with God in worship. There's a lot of stuff these days and every days that goes on that just tears into our lives, that pulls us down, and that beats us up. It's very easy in these times to lose sight of who God is and what God does. And so I need to be reminded each week of what God is doing and to reconnect my, my life with him in the community of the church. And to summarize this, Paul has a little cluster of verses. He says, be joyful always. Pray continually. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Now, we're well aware. We all know that our personal worship is vital. Of course it is. Individually, we're called to be joyful, to pray, to give thanks. But we have a vital need to be part of the corporate life of a church that does that. You think about the beginning of Psalm 95. You, you notice the emphasis that the psalmist has on us together, 
Come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout aloud to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before him with thanksgiving and extol him with music and song. Come, let us bow down and worship. Let us kneel before the Lord our maker, for he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture, the flock under his care. There's an usness about all of that. It means we need each other. I need to hear you sing. I don't know if you need to hear me sing, but I need to hear you sing. As we stand and we worship God together. As people pray and lead us in prayer, Sunday by Sunday. We're kind of getting out of COVID, I think, these days. It's, I'm not always sure, but we're kind of getting out of it. I think the one of the great negatives of the beginning of COVID for us in churches, we could not meet together face to face. And so churches like Central and others put a, a lot of time and effort and money into getting people online. Just, let me just be very honest with you for a minute. I've got to tell you, being at home and watching online didn't really do it much for me. I'm sorry. I just needed to be together. I need to stand in the congregation of the people of God every week to worship to be part of this choir of praise, to pray together, to hear what God is doing, what God is saying to you and your work. And if you're online and you join us Sunday by Sunday, can I say to you this morning, if you're online and you live in Victoria, come on down next Sunday for Resurrection Sunday. Come and join us in body. Come and join us in person. We need you, okay? There's my invitation to you. All the seats are the same price. Don't worry about that. But we need to be together. Sometimes to clap our hands. Sometimes to rejoice. Sometimes to listen in stillness to prayer. To hear God's word. And I want to be in a church that has spiritual discernment. Cluster of four verses. Do not put out the Spirit's fire. Do not treat prophecies with contempt. Test everything. Hold on to what is good. Avoid every kind of evil. John Stott, the British author and preacher, says in one of his books about this. He said, there's two problems in the holier of the Holy Spirit for churches today. On the one hand, we're open to nothing new. Our minds and hearts are closed to his work and to his ministry. This puts out and it quenches the fire of the Spirit. It closes the church and our lives to the life-changing, transforming power of the Holy Spirit. We're just like a club then, like any other organization. But on the other hand, says Stott, the problem is the churches can be so open to everything that they end up in all kinds of trouble. Theological, emotional, moral, relational. The answer, he says, is in the verse, verses 21. The answer is to test everything. To hold on to what is good. And so this style, situation, may be referring to a church style that's much more free-flowing than ours. Understand that. When someone says, I have a word from the Lord, and you really don't know where it's from. First Timothy says, the Spirit clearly says that in latter days, some will abandon the faith and follow deceiving spirits and things taught by demons. Such things come through hypocritical liars whose consciences have been seared by hot iron. Paul is saying words of prophecy have to be put to the test. Put in the crucible and the heat turned up to see if they're really true or false or genuine, whatever. So what do, how do we test them? So Stott gives us five tests to work with that. First of all, he said, there is the plain truth of Scripture. 
What we say and what we teach has to balance with the whole counsel of God. That means across the whole spectrum and breadth of Scripture. In other words, it has to fit somewhere within the entire flow of Scripture and to be supported by the truth of God's Word. Most heresies begin as truth. And they usually contain some truth. Just enough truth to sound believable. But then it becomes truth out of balance. They have to be, they have to be taken what I sometimes call small truth and large beyond its size. That's often the beginning of heresy. So the things have to be balanced in the whole truth of Scripture. Then they have to support the divine, the human divine nature of Jesus. John, in his, in his epistle, says, Dear friends, do not believe every spirit. In other words, don't be gullible. But test the spirits to see whether they're from God. Because many false spirits of prophets have gone out into the world. This is how you can recognize the Spirit of God. In other words, here is how you can recognize truth and authenticity. Every spirit that acknowledges that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. The word that is truly from the Spirit of God will always affirm the person of Jesus as the word become flesh. The third test, Stott suggests, is what he calls the test of grace. There are many movements today that call on people for all kind of effort. What they have to do to be accepted. What they have to do to be welcomed. What they have to give up to be part of the community. Perhaps some spiritual leader of increasing knowledge says, this is what you have to, to climb, climb higher with us. And it forms a kind of what's called Gnosticism in the first and second centuries. The only ground for our authentic message is the grace of God. Nothing more, nothing less. A message that has the breath of the Spirit in it will also affirm the grace of God. Number four, we often forget this. A true message is known and validated by the character of the speaker. Jesus says, watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they're ferocious wolves. And he says, by your fruit, by their fruit, sorry, by their fruit, you will recognize them. And so we must not accept, we must not tolerate a disconnect between what we sometimes call as the walk and the talk. There must be an authentic correlation between the private world and the public world. Number five, Test the spirit, the degree to which a message edifies and build ups, builds up the church. A genuine message should always encourage, strengthen, edify, comfort, and at times convict. It seems today that some people are so hungry for anything. They will listen to and respond to almost anything or anyone. The scriptures are saying to us individually, to us as a church, do not be gullible. But on the other hand, don't be so close-minded that God's spirit cannot bring a fresh word to us. We want what is genuine as opposed to counterfeit. We want to listen and respond to what is authentic as opposed to what is false, to what is solid as opposed to what is simply empty. Remember, as we live in these last days, Paul says to young Timothy, do not be devoted to myths, endless genealogies. They promote controversies rather than God's work, which is by faith. But the command of our love, uh, the goal of our command is love, which comes from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. 
So as a church, we want to be open and sensitive to the moving of God's spirit, who takes the word and breathes life into it. We want to sing with confidence some Sundays, Holy Spirit, rain down. Holy Spirit, rain down. Or sometimes, sometimes gently sing. Remember the old chorus, Spirit of the living God, fall afresh on me. Melt me, mold me, fill me, use me. We want to sing as we did this morning, gently and quietly. I surrender all. I surrender all. So the spirit that brooded over the waters and brought order out of chaos also gently sweeps over our lives and brings new life. He breathes into us as he breathed the breath of God into Adam in the garden. So we're living in these last days. We're living between, remember, two epiphanies. One is the coming of Christ at his birth. The other is his coming in power and in glory. We're called to nothing less than to live like believers as we live in these last days. Paul is a great benediction that we'll read in just a moment. But interestingly, he finishes his letter with a just personal closing word. He says, brothers and sisters, pray for us. You think we need to pray for Paul? Yes, we do. Pray for us. And then he says, greet all God's people with a holy kiss. In his culture, that meant that men would kiss men and women would kiss women. Can I say to you this morning, we're not going to do that? <laughs> I don't care what Paul says. <laughs> we're not going to do that. But then he finishes, I charge you before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers and sisters. We did that. We want to take a moment to thank you for listening. And we invite you to join us on Sunday mornings in person or online. Thanks for listening to the Central Baptist Church Victoria podcast.